0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's
0: Darcy. I to pick your brain on the trucker. Hi, my
1: name's Jenna Johnson.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, July 26th. Today, not your neurotypical romance novel. The Appeal of writer Helen Huang and why outdoor concerts really aren't all that fun.
1: I have been told that, w- that we will be reading a sex scene during this interview. Well, I was just told that. But the, we're, this is just the French kissing, though, right? Like, that's not, that's it's not sex, so I feel like that's okay.
0: So, Lisa Bonos, just to set things up, Tell me about the books that you've been reading and the author you interviewed.
1: So I've been reading these two romance novels by author Helen Huang, who is pretty new on the scene. They're called The Kiss Quotient and The Bride Test. The Kiss Quotient has been optioned for a movie, and the books are really popular. And they both feature protagonists that are on the autism spectrum, which is a pretty rare thing in romance novels. And they're, the author as well, she has Asperger's and was diagnosed as a, as a 30-something
0: so, this author, Helen Wong, who, who is she?
1: Um, we'll just put this here. Will, you'll forget about it. Um, she grew up as what she self-describes as a love nerd. I
2: started writing my first romance novel in, like, Probably my senior year of high school.
1: And, Somebody and I, who, when she was 12, she saved up her lunch money for a week, went without lunch so that she could buy her first romance novel, and has been obsessed with them ever since.
2: And the whole time I was like reading romance like like a drug, you know, I just read it all the time. And but I remember when I went to college, I quit reading romance. I was like, Why? I'm going to quit because I have to be a grown up now. I have to, I have to, you know.
1: So Helen started by writing these paranormal romances and they didn't really take off with agents and stuff. And then in her 30s had sort of a personal breakthrough where she realized that she was on the autism spectrum herself. She didn't know that until she was in her 30s. Until she was 34. And how did she find that out?
2: At first I spoke to a therapist um, who specializes with adults on the spectrum um, and she offered her professional opinion. And then I I thought that maybe that wasn't quite enough so then I spoke to a psychiatrist who specializes in and she agreed and so I felt more confident
1: though sometimes and then I- things sort of started to click into place both for her novel and her and her own life
2: thinking back of all the things I did when I was little um, I would I would watch the other kids
1: and- you know Helen had always had trouble making friends as a teenager and had felt really lonely and social interaction was really difficult for her
2: there was, you know, a time when this girl, she told me that my my facial expressions were scary.
0: And so in these novels, not only is it the sort of kind of standard romance plot of like these people coming together and figuring each other out and finding out that they're attracted to each other and finding a way to be together, but also like navigating that extra layer of autism and how that plays out in an intimate relationship.
1: Yeah, no, in the kiss quotient, Stella thinks that, she thinks she's unlovable and that someone would have trouble being with her. And the the man that she's with thinks that he's unlovable for completely other reasons, right? And they sort of are misunderstanding each other about why that is and eventually have to work through that and really communicate.
0: So I'm curious, like, what did she say about why she wanted to make her characters autistic
1: in her book? Yeah, Helen talked about Getting to write these autistic characters and giving people who are on the spectrum themselves a chance to see themselves reflected in literature, which doesn't happen very often, and to have a happy ending, which they don't often see.
2: What's important is just to show a lot of different depictions of autistic people. I think we just need more. Yeah. According to the
0: CDC, one in 59 kids gets diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. So it's pretty surprising that there aren't more representations of people on the spectrum in books and movies, and that the ones that there are don't show a full, nuanced range of experiences. Hello? Hi, Amy?
2: Yes, this is Amy.
0: So our producer, Rena reached out to an expert.
2: First off, what's your name and what do you do? Who talks
0: a lot about autism and, in her case what it's like to be on the spectrum and in a relationship.
3: My name is Amy Gravino, and I am an autism consultant and professional public speaker. Well, some of the myths that people have and conceptions that people have when it comes to autism and dating, uh, there are quite a few. And one longstanding one is that autistic individuals are asexual, that they're not interested in sex or dating, don't care about it, don't want anything to do with it. And there are certainly people on the spectrum who are asexual. But when that becomes the predominant image, such as through shows like The Big Bang Theory, which I can't stand, uh, then it becomes a problem because that becomes the, the measure by which all people judge all autistic individuals.
4: You don't have to go back very far to reach a time when almost no one had ever heard of autism.
0: That's John Donvan.
4: I'm a journalist. I co-wrote with uh, my friend Karen Zucker a history of the sweeping diagnosis of autism and all of its ups and downs called In a Different Key, the story of autism, which is now on its way to becoming a documentary.
0: John has reported on how these problems of autism representation go back to the very first diagnoses.
4: First, there was a time when nobody heard anything about autism. And when the media referred to it at all, it was seen as a tragic phenomenon. So Life Magazine, for example, did an article in 1965 about a treatment being experimented with at um, UCLA, where they were actually using electric shock to try to change children's behavior. And in its description of the children, which was really, I think, intended to be quite sympathetic, nevertheless, the children were described there as far gone mental cripples. And that began to change a little bit in the 1960s, because parents began to organize for the first time and to find each other. Along the way, there were depictions of autism that really captured how badly autism was misunderstood. And in a very basic way, autism was misunderstood for decades as the result of mothers not loving their children enough. Everybody says it's how she was born deaf. And the child is pulling away from you and retreating into his or her own world. Is Amanda your daughter? My sister's kid. She just come and dumped her on me a couple of years ago. She,
2: she never wanted the kid in the first place.
4: You can see the story of neglect of love in a few different fictional accounts of autism, most notably, and kind of strangely, Elvis Presley's last movie. But you got
2: to be able to hear to do that.
4: Which he made in 1969, called Change of Habit. Presley plays a psychiatrist working in an urban setting, assisted by a nun, played by Mary Tyler Moore. One day, a child comes in named Amanda. She's not speaking. And Mary Tyler Moore, the non-nurse, says... I think she's autistic. Autistic? Nah, she don't even lift up a crayon. No, autistic. And Presley says right away, you're right, I can see this. And he says, I'm I'm now going to purge her autistic frustration. That's what he calls it. And he picks the girls up and he wraps his arms around her. And he says to her...
2: No, man. No more toys, baby. You gotta learn to start loving people. I'm gonna hold you until you get rid of all your hate. So you get as mad as you can.
4: And then he begins to hug her, and he says in his Elvis voice,
2: "Try it get away from me, baby. Try it get away."
4: I love, I love Amanda. you,
2: Amanda. Don't you like when people love you? Come on. I wanna see you get as mad as you can get. Get all that hate out of you.
4: And then finally, Amanda, who wasn't speaking, speaks a word. <laughs>
2: And then there's a
4: pause, and she says, love. And then she's cured of autism.
2: Love
0: you. Love you. Love? Love?
2: Love.
4: Then came 1988 and came Rain Man, and that really, really changed everything for the public's awareness of a thing called autism, of a condition called autism. I'm an
0: excellent driver. Yeah, that's good. Come on, come on. In the Oscar-winning film, Dustin Hoffman plays an autistic man named Raymond Babbitt. Tom Cruise is his younger brother, Charlie. Miss, he needs toothpicks. Could you help him? him some? Toothpicks? Thank you very much. Now, you they go on a road trip.
4: And they travel for several days together, and they get to know each other. And during the course of the film, the audience gets to have a perception of what one kind of autism looks like. He needs some toothpicks. Can we just get him some toothpicks over here? To the degree that there was a controversy over Rain Man... It's that, you know, everybody with autism is different from everybody else with autism. So Dustin Hoffman played one particular person with autism. He did it, I think, with great nuance and dignity and sensitivity, but it was just one person with autism. So what happened when Rain Man came out was that the civilians in the audience saw this movie and they thought that every single person who had autism acted exactly like Dustin Hoffman did in this movie. And the, the character in the movie has certain savant skills particularly calculation of numbers and being able to count items quickly. And there's a scene in the movie where a box of toothpicks falls onto the ground and he instantly looks at it and he knows how many there are. Another check. Sorry about the toothpicks. 82, 82, 82. 82 what? How much is this? Toothpicks. And so there were stories from that time of, uh, where parents of people with autism were getting phone calls from their friends or the cousin would come over and, and say, by the way, can, can we see him do the toothpick trick? You know, they were kind of asking for performances. That's where the, where the culture was at that time. People were so unfamiliar with autism. Now they see a person with autism. Now they think everybody with autism is just like Dustin Hoffman was in that movie. We
3: have come some ways since brain man, obviously the, uh, you know, that was the one indelible image of autism that people had for a good 30 years, I would say. But um, I, I, I haven't seen one that I really think hits the nail on the head yet. I I, I I want people to see that, yes, there are differences. Obviously, there are things that set us apart, but there are so many more things we have in common. I actually, I'm on the board of a film festival um, in New Jersey, and we screen films related to autism for the festival. It's part of our, our raising awareness. And some of the submissions that I see, you know, are... Frustrating, and I can tell if they're either written or directed by a neurotypical because there's a rich internal life for every single character except the autistic character. Uh, for some reason, it stops there.
0: That lack of representation elsewhere is part of why Helen Huang's novels have resonated so much with people who are on the spectrum and even
1: people who aren't. Parents who have children on the spectrum have written her saying how her books give them hope that their children will thrive. And she's heard from sexual assault survivors who've had trouble enjoying sex. Scenes in her book really focus on establishing trust before intimacy, and they're really powerful. And she said that sexual assault survivors have have found them meaningful and Mm. inspiring as well.
0: So how does that play out in in her books? Because I think that that is a kind of recurring problem with the romance genre in general, right? Like the idea that a lot of times people are sort of consumed with passion and not necessarily like asking for consent or not necessarily like talking beforehand about like, what they're okay with and what they're not okay with and setting boundaries. Like that's just not what you read in romance novels. And so it's interesting that that, is so much of what she writes about.
1: Yeah, no, the scenes are, are very powerful and specific, and the characters talk to each other about, okay, if you're going to touch me, touch me like this, or tell me what you're going to do before you do it, or they talk very specifically about, I have not done this thing before, whether that's French kissing or intercourse itself, and they will just talk very specifically about like what's okay and, and what's not, and it's um, it's also very sexy, so it's great to see that. Well, that was my question. Like, is it still sexy? Even if you're
0: talking about the logistics of, I would like to be touched this way. Please don't do that. I don't like it when this happens. This is okay.
1: For sure. Uh, I mean, would you like me to read an example from the book that's not a sex scene, but actually in The Bride Test, one character is giving another character a haircut for the first time, but it's also the first time they're really touching. Yeah. I think it kind of shows that. Yeah. All right. He cleared his throat. Light touches bother me, and it's worse when I don't know it's coming. So when you cut my hair, I'd appreciate it if you kept your touch firm, like this. He gathered her hand in both of his and pressed her palm to the middle of his chest, keeping his hands over hers. She tugged on her arm slightly. Can I touch your face? He nodded and let his hands drop away from hers. She lifted her fingers toward his jaw but stopped before making contact. Can you help me? She didn't want to get it wrong. She reached her other hand toward him, curled the fingers as she hesitated, and then threaded them into his damp hair, pressing her fingertips firmly to his scalp. Is this okay? When his eyelids drooped with pleasure and he nodded, she grew braver. She pushed her other hand from his jaw up to his temple and into his hairline. How is that? She whispered. Good. The word rumbled out of him, deep, almost gravelly. Her massage had brought color to his cheeks and a drowsy cast to his dark, dark eyes. His lips had never looked so kissable. The need to kiss him grew into a wild craving, urging her to crawl right onto his lap, press her body against his, and take, take, take. I think that's probably a good place to stop. And I don't even think that they've... I don't think they've done anything physical at this point in the book. But like, yeah. that's intense, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, do you think that these books could change the way we see sex depicted in pop culture in general?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, in both of these you have these really specific descriptions of how, you know, how a character would like to be intimate that are incredibly emotional and trust-building and sensual that I think translated to the screen could work really well. And in this Me Too moment where we're talking about what is sexy and what looks desirable on screen and, uh, and consent, both of these do that well and could also be really sexy.
0: For people who do have autism, who have read her books, what do they say about the experience of reading
2: them? I want to be open and I want to educate people. I want people to see the different sides of autism. I'm one face. I'm not trying to represent everybody, but I am one band on a spectrum, right? And I think that's important to do.
0: Lisa Bonos writes about dating and relationships for The Post. Helen Huang is the author of The Kiss Quotient and The Bride Test. Amy Gravino is an author and consultant. And John Donvan is the co-author of In a Different Key, The Story of Autism. And now, one more thing. Scenes from a summer concert.
5: My friend who I was directly standing next to was like, oh my god, oh my god, look what he's doing, look what he's doing. And I looked down the row, you know, he's got it in his hand, and he's going like he's at a urinal, except the urinal was a couple of people standing in front of him. And again, they were completely oblivious, probably because I would imagine they were, yeah, they were as banged up as everybody else that was at that show. Jim Murray, he's a radio host up in Boston. He despises outdoor concerts. And one of the reasons was drinking, kind of getting out of hand sometimes at these shows. He experienced it firsthand. Uh, Back in 1994, he went to see Pink Floyd at uh, the old Foxborough Stadium outside Boston. And one of his buddies, uh, a big guy, he said, uh, drank uh, about five 40-ouncers, enough to kill uh, an elephant, I believe is how he put it. And uh, the guy was a little bit out of his head and uh, decided to use the bathroom right there on the people in front of him. Who didn't even realize that he was doing it. My name is Travis Andrews, and I'm a pop culture reporter with the style section with The Washington Post. We have the series in the style section kind of taking, you know, beloved summer traditions and really breaking them down, saying, are these any good? We've done everything from long days to uh, crabbing and, and things like that. And for mine, the first thing that sprang to mind was ugh, outdoor concerts. Being outdoors is great. Picnics are great. Hanging out in the grass is great. But the cons kind of start stacking up when you think about what that actually So let's start with sound quality. It's very difficult to get a good mix uh, outside. It can be great with a great sound engineer, but oftentimes it's muddled. They also aren't often doing sound checks, which is really important because normally so many bands are playing in a row. Another thing is it's summer in the United States. Most places it's hot, and that in itself isn't very fun, but it also means you're getting dehydrated. And a lot of these venues, you know... It's maybe hard to get water. You don't want to give up your good spot to go get water. Generally, people are drinking. You know, drug use is pretty common. And with the dehydration and that going on at the same time, people get sloppy a lot quicker.
0: Being in an outdoor concert feels like all the worst parts about going camping with 20,000 strangers, most of whom are wasted, in a place that smells a lot like beer and BO, and it's just, it's messy.
5: So I spoke to a DC resident, Carol, who absolutely despises them for a very funny reason. Uh, She doesn't like the fact that at all of these outdoor concerts, and this really does happen, there's always someone shouting free bird.
0: Honestly, I'd much rather be in air conditioning where the audio is good if I'm gonna pay that much money to see somebody live.
5: People feel really strongly about outdoor concerts. I've been told, so I'm 31 years old, and I've been told both that I'm too old and too young to understand the appeal of outdoor concerts. I've been told I don't like concerts, uh, which is a decided falsehood. But yeah, people, I've seen on some local news stations, people are debating the piece and saying, are these good or are they bad? Uh, Most people think I just need to like sit back and take a bong rip or a couple beers.
0: My first three concerts that I've ever, that I ever saw were outdoors. It was Donny Osmond, Willie Nelson and Rick Springfield and I loved it but now that I'm an adult I think I'm okay to never go to another one again Travis Andrews is a pop culture reporter for The Post That's it for Post Reports Thanks for listening Our executive producer is Madalika Sika Our senior producer is Matt Collette our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon. Our intern is Renny Svernowski. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hi, it's Lillian Cunningham, host of The Washington Post's presidential and constitutional podcasts. Come with me on my next podcast journey, Moonrise. Moonrise reexamines the story you thought you knew about why we went to the moon. I dig into newly declassified documents and presidential records, closed-door political deals, the Cold War nuclear arms race, and even the history of science fiction, to tell a new story about space. It's one that's darker, but also truer than the story you've probably heard before. And it has a lot to tell us about ourselves as Americans and as humans. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise.